When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Army and fellow music fans, I'm Kayla. And I'm Bethany, and we're the hosts of Standing BTS from the Consequence Podcast Network. We're a bi-weekly show that covers the impact and legacy of K-pop group BTS. We mix the perfect blend of research and fangirl as we take a deep dive into lyrics during album reviews, theorize over music videos, and keep up with their current events. No BTS topic is off limits. We welcome everyone into the conversation, whether you're a casual fan, committed ARMY, or someone who's just curious about one of the biggest music groups in the world. Come chat with us every other Thursday with a new episode wherever podcasts are found. This episode of The Spark Parade is supported by Before the Chorus, hosted by award-winning interviewer and radio host, Sophia Lopicaro. This podcast dives into the stories and experiences that shape the artists we love and ultimately the music we hear. Previous guests have included Glass Animals, Clipping, Future Islands, and Julian Baker. You can listen on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. The Spark Parade is also supported by Factual America, the new podcast by the team at Alamo Pictures, the Austin and London-based production company. It examines America through the lens of documentary filmmaking. In every episode, seasoned journalist Matthew Sherwood chats with leading documentary filmmakers and experts on the American experience. Check out a recent episode with R.J. Cutler on his experience making the new Billie Eilish documentary. Find it on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. Hello, and welcome to The Spark Parade, where I geek out with artists and entertainers about their cultural spark of inspiration. I'm Adam Unz, at Spark Parade on all social media. Thanks so much for joining me. This week, my guest is the brilliant comedian Max Silvestri, and he has gifted me with the opportunity to talk about one of my favorite movies ever, Moonstruck. I had such a wonderful time with Max, and this conversation is even more special and poignant because the incredible Olympia Dukakis, who won an Oscar for Moonstruck, died over the weekend. I had already planned to release this episode today, but now it is going to serve as kind of a tribute to her. Um, so that's uh, that's very sad news. More on Olympia Dukakis later on in the episode. Um Anyway, my chat with Max covers so much ground. He's such a sweet and thoughtful guy, and I really loved talking to someone who was as affected by this movie as I have been. We also touch a little bit on The Royal Tenenbaums, which is another film that uh, means a lot to Max. So lots and lots of stuff to talk about, which means we should probably get to it first quick Max facts. Max Silvestri is a comedian, writer, and actor whose stand-up special can be seen on Netflix's The Comedy Lineup. Max is currently a producer on the upcoming Netflix series Human Resources, which, side note, is a spinoff of Big Mouth and I am super excited for it. And he's also developing a dark half-hour comedy at FX. Previous writing credits include Big Mouth, Q-Force, Medical Police, and Billy on the Street. As an actor, his credits include The Good Place, AP Bio, Brooklyn Nine-Nine, and Broad City. While in New York, Max also co-hosted the long 
long-running show Big Terrific, together with Jenny Slate and Gabe Liedman, now a regular fixture at LA's famed Largo at the Coronet. Quick Moonstruck facts. Moonstruck is an American romantic comedy film written by John Patrick Shanley and directed by Norman Jewison. It stars Cher, Nicolas Cage, Danny Aiello, the great Olympia Dukakis, and Vincent Gardinia. The film follows Loretta Castorini, played by Cher, who is an Italian-American widowed woman who falls in love with her fiancé's estranged, hot-tempered younger brother. And for good measure quick Royal Tenenbaums facts. The Royal Tenenbaums is a comedy drama from 2001 directed by Wes Anderson and co-written with Owen Wilson. It stars Danny Glover, Gene Hackman, Angelica Houston, Bill Murray, Gwyneth Paltrow, Ben Stiller, Luke Wilson, and Owen Wilson. It follows the lives of three gifted siblings who experience great success in youth and even greater disappointment and failure in adulthood. The children's eccentric father, Royal Tenenbaum, played by Hackman, leaves them in their adolescent years, then returns to them after they have grown false claiming he has a terminal illness. He works on reconciling with his children and ex-wife. Phew! I think we've covered all of our bases, so let's get to the main event. Here comes my chat with Max Silvestri about Moonstruck with bonus Royal Tenenbaums. Do you remember seeing Moonstruck for the first time? I don't have a memory of the first time I saw it. This was like a family movie that just always existed. Like, I... I remember the VHS copy being around as soon as I had an awareness that we owned VHSs. Like this came out when I was five or six and I don't have a memory of it being in the theater, but like we just then had it and, and only had like, just like we only had like five cassette tapes for a long time in the car that we were ever allowed to listen to. We had five movies on tape and this was one of them. I like feel like Moonstruck was on a lot during much of my youth. Yeah. Yeah. And it's one of those movies, like I rewatched it in preparation for this and it's like absolute perfection. I I mean, I should say qualify that a bit. It's like absolute white perfection. It's this very (laughs) like a, a version of New York where only white people exist. That's my one retrospective criticism. But outside of that, everything is like this it's kind of a fairy tale, but it's also really grounded in reality. You, there's performances that are very subtle and there's performances that are like heightened. Uh, Not n- subtle. You, We can say, yeah, we can. Nicolas Cage, for example, is is living in a space that's that's larger than um, most anything that's ever been committed to film. I mean, yeah, I rewatched it as well. And it's I think this is maybe my second time watching it of the pandemic already um mm. maybe my third time in the last two years and it's like the rare movie i love that i like more every time i see it and i've thought it was funny and loved it forever but truly like each time i rewatch, i'm like more blown away and i when rewatching it last night it, it's funny you say the like the fairy tale type quality because it's it's like this really really rare combination of like the the like the writing and the performances are like really feel like observed human behavior and mm-hmm. really like grounded. And and a lot of that is how great the performances are and how fully fleshed out and specific and alive these characters feel. So it's like, oh, wow, this is like a very realistic movie in a certain ways, but it's also like very impressionistic and is like working in this like heightened palette where it isn't real. And almost no comedy ever pulls that off. Like, I mean, maybe it's that Shanley was a, was a playwright or Mm -hmm. just his style, but there's like, nobody's as 
like sweet or optimistic in that style. Like Moonstruck for all its its acerbic characters and like lines about like I should have killed myself with a rock or you know <laughs> yeah. you'll you'll yeah and you'll be dead and I'll come to your funeral in a red dress. Like all these right. really like beautiful fatalistic lines. It also is like a very sweet movie in love with its characters that gives everybody like a magical happy ending which is just a beautiful combo yeah a friend was saying i was talking to a friend about it and it feels like i don't think this is true but it feels like it's based on some like weird 400 italian like 400 year old italian folklore or something like that i mean in this rewatch i was really taking in like all the kind of woo-woo like uh moon stuff and this Mm -hmm. kind of magical feeling and like everyone's been cast under a spell and it like is this is there some like old ancient italian like mountain form like a moon farce or something where it's like everybody switches switches spouses but all ends up especially happy at the end and it's like uh yeah friend and i were joking it's commedia della luna which is uh, an Italian form where just silly things happen to people under a full moon and it's all okay because it's the full moon. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. It's weird. It's like definitely that fairy tale feeling, but almost like magical realism without the magic or something. There's like, uh, you know, it feels like something supernatural is happening, but absolutely nothing does. And that kind of balance of like naturalism with the kind of heightened fairy tale-ness constantly cycling back and forth like you know the interactions between Cher and Olympia Dukakis I mean you know obviously they were rewarded handsomely for those performances but um just so real and like funny in a way that you, you can recognize your own family or your interactions with your own parents in them and then you know scenes with like Nicholas Cage or uh, Vincent Gardenia, who's like Mr. Mushnicking it up, uh, yeah, know, just really uh, over <laughs> God, the top. He's so funny, and- um, but but perfect, and none of it feels the balance is so perfect that it doesn't feel like any of it takes you out of it. It's it's so subtly. Yeah, it's like I wonder if there's something to like this generation or time of like a certain like children of immigrant story. You know, I mean, John Patrick Shanley is like. Irish American from the Bronx. And I read somewhere that Norman Jewison once said, like, if you were Irish, Italian, or Puerto Rican and from the Bronx or Brooklyn, like John Patrick Shanley, Shanley could write you because of sort of like what the way he grew up and the different communities he grew up in. But there is this, the, the way the family, which my dad was Italian and like was born in New Jersey, but kind of grew up in New York. And his parents were like, you know, immigrants to the Lower East Side. And like, it's kind of why the movie looms so large for us is because it was to him like this very accurate representation of what this mix of all the relatives in one house and the old country grandfather and the like that experience, even though it was written by an Irish American guy felt like fully lived in a for him. But it there is something of like these types of families which I like observed in his were so heightened in the way that they like scream bloody murder at each other. But you kind of know that like the safety wall of family is like so indestructible that like you, you, you aren't hurt or let down by watching characters just be like, I want to murder you or whatever, because unlike say the Sopranos or later versions of, I don't know, dramas with these types of characters, like, you know, that the family in Moonstruck is not really going to strangle each other. You know that, I don't know, they're always going to be family and they're always, it's almost got like these television rules of love where you're like, 
this family's never going to break up. So I'm actually willing to watch them run dump trucks over each other at the dinner table because I know that like they get to do that and they have the freedom to do that because catharsis to do that because it's like, well, you never can turn your back away from your family. That's everything, you know, and it sets up those rules so cleanly where you're like every little scene and they're like having a drink because you're coming home late. Like there's not a lot of plot, but like every little scene that happens they can push it to 10 like it's a play because you're not worried about like, well, now she's never going to talk to her dad. I guess that's the thing. It's like, no, they're going to have this scene where they like fully rip each other apart. And he's like, I hate your husband <laughs> or mm. your fiance is an idiot or this ring's ugly and all this stuff. But you it's like it can it can go to the very edges of like what drama is supposed to be because they can just like be at exact opposite ends, but you're still sort of holding on to like, well, they love each other here. You know, the fiance may never, never be allowed to come over for dinner, but (laughs) you know, he's still going to be your father. Yeah. And I think that feeling of family, another thing about the performances is that even when somebody is saying, I'm going to kill you or whatever, the reaction is so just like, ugh, yeah, yeah, yeah. You know, it's, it's clear that it's like, this is, the dynamic of the family's relationship with each other, but also just like anybody who's ever lived in or been to New York, it's like, it's not something that's just particular to Italian families. It's like, it feels very much like the character of New York, like people just yelling at each other and telling each other to fuck off and just, you know, constant screaming, nonstop noise. It's like outside of my window right now. Um, (laughs) But uh, yeah. And, and I think it is a, a New York film that feels like New York isn't like a lead character but it's it's an important part of the setting like it it means something that it's in new york yeah and i like wonder if it could take place anywhere else and i mean the way that i think you're right in that it's not like it doesn't foreground new york exactly i mean it feels very true to the new york of this time like from what i've been told what i imagine then the new york i lived but like it certainly influenced my the way i took in new york and the new york i wanted when I moved, I lived in New York for 10 years and, you know, I moved to like an Italian part of Brooklyn and I lived, you know, had an Italian landlord who had his name carved in like marble on the top of the building. And my dad would come and like, you know, when he would visit, would have these kind of uh, Italian tri-state area guy one to another, like conversations being like, you got to, you know, really feel like you should get a dishwasher for the place. Um <laughs> And, you know, loved Carroll Gardens. And I never lived in Carroll Gardens or Cobble Hill or um, technically the Columbia Historic Waterfront District, which I believe is where this movie takes place. But like I like these the old grocery stores and the meat markets and the like, you know, all that in the window. It was like the New York I was in love with before I even got here. I sort of feel like my the way my dad would talk about like New York and Italy and Little Italy and like the family stuff felt I mean, he did grow up in that, but also like, I feel like my, my relationship to cultural Italianness is as much filtered through like Moonstruck, this heightened <laughs> Irish written you know, Jewish directed version acted by, you know, Greeks and Armenians was like what I was sort of like, oh yeah, that's kind of where my dad's coming from. And that's like what I value in like eggs and peppers and like, you know, an espresso and a cannoli after a meal, like that's what's, but it was like, I don't know if that came before or because of Moonstruck or like what I'm trying to like chase after just a credit to like how vivid a representation of this really like lived experience it was. Yeah, I, I think that like the idea of romance, but also kind of nostalgia, like it felt 
nostalgic at the time. There's something that's just like mm-hmm. this kind of, it makes me feel like a yearning for a life that I've never had. There's just some like it, this weird connection that I feel to all of these people that's like this strong, affectionate bond that they all feel like real characters in my life. And I think like Shanley said that he wrote using overheard snatches of conversation from, you know, around his neighborhood and tried to like incorporate real larger than life characters into the film. And maybe that's got something to do with that feeling. But, and that, you know, again, like you said, Cobble Hill, that whole area is, feels like a very romantic, you know, idealized version of uh, what living in New York would be. And, you know, it's acknowledged in the movie that the house that they live in is a fucking palace. I think it just went on the market for like $30 million. Really? Um, Oh, wow crazy but even even with that being like they you know they're in a very specific uh, specific circumstance where they can't afford uh, uh they can afford a, a huge house it still feels like this sort of attainable vision of what uh brooklyn living sure. could be she's like a freelance accountant you know like running around doing the books for you know he lives and he lives above the bakery it's you know it's it's like interest like i the a, the way you talk about how it was probably nostalgic then and still is now, and like clearly even the characters in the moment are trying to hold on to something that's older, you know, like like the aunt and uncle character kind of like still telling stories about Cosmo's engagement and like, you know, you look 25 years younger in the moonlight and like there, there's sort of, and, and the movie ending on the shot of presumably the great grandparents or whatever that you know, when they came over this like photo on the wall of, you know, them getting married in Sicily or whatever it was like a hundred years ago or something. There's kind of with a little C like a a conservative feeling to the movie where it is a little bit the way we do things is great. And these traditions are great in a way that could be a little like feel backwards or not that fun to just have, you know, all these cranky characters that hate how everything's being done the wrong way. Mm -hmm. But because the movie sort of embraces throwing that off, and jumping into a wild, non-conservative, you know, version of what she should be doing with her life. And she kind of is embraced by all these members of her family. Like, the, like ultimately, like, family and love is the, like, thing that they're holding on to. It's not like, no, you got to marry this kind of guy and you got to do it like this. And mm-hmm. Johnny is mocked for his sort of old-fashioned Sicilian, my mother needs this and I'm, I'm you know, uh, superstitious and all that. Like that gets mocked where you're, you're kind of like, oh, you can have nostalgia without feeling like it's also, I don't know, like cruel or not, not welcoming of like changing, you know, attitudes and things like that. Because there, there is, she ultimately doesn't have that tough a struggle mm-hmm. to completely reinvent how things are done in her life and her family. Like, you know, it's all she if anything, she has more internal struggle. Like she's not she doesn't even get that much pushback from the family. There's like a little bit of, you know, what's going on here. But ultimately, she has two dates and is like, I love him and it's great. And, you know, it's all wrapped up for her, which is part of the fairy tale. Mm-hmm niche of it of not just that everyone ends up happy or not with their lives ruined but also how easy it is when you do find crazy love or whatever to reroute your entire life to allow for it i think that's like hopeful and fun yeah i mean let's be fair she did put in quite a lot of work she got her hair done she had a perm she dyed her hair so and she got some new clothes so she she certainly she had (laughs) 
an afternoon on one block yes. of the neighborhood that she works in. Pre- presumably her aunt and uncle's store is like around the corner from the Brownstone uh, on like Smith Street or whatever. But uh, yeah, Cher does have to do have one expensive afternoon. And I was also just so relieved rewatching it. And I think it's being like a TV writer now where I was like, oh, if you were trying to make this movie now, her forgetting to do the deposit would be such an exhausting C-plot where like, the business is going to go under and the money she left it on the train and she's got to, you know, go like it would just be this like problem she was chasing after gumming everything up in the third act where you would mm-hmm. just be like, God, I just want to see all these characters like talk to each other and hug. But instead, she's trying to like go to the bus depot to see if they still have her bag or something. And instead, this is just like the aunt and uncle come over at the end and they're like, did you forget to do the deposit? And she's like, oh, I did. And they're like, great. Mm-hmm. <laughs> it's like, yeah, that's all. I got enough drama out of that. You know, I don't need she was distracted for an afternoon. Yeah. I get it. And she's fine again. And it's also that, you know, it adds to that atmosphere of just sweetness and love that it isn't, you know, it's the people who trust each other, who, you know, know each other better than anyone else. And it's this kind of like, oh, we were, we thought this is probably what happened, but we just wanted to make sure that you, you still have the money. Okay. You good. Great, great, great. And it's, yeah. it adds color to, you know, uh, what you already know about the family, but you don't need any more than that. And adding some kind of like hijinks for no apparent reason. It's, it's such a lean yeah. movie. It's so tight. It is so like, the pacing is just unbelievable. And like, there's no moments that drag in a way of like, I know where the story's going and I'm bored or I'm annoyed that the stakes have been raised in this false way where it's like, oh, the business is being foreclosed. Like, it really is sort of like, by the time you realize that Danny Aiello's plane is landing and then there's just kind of one extended incredible sequence in the kitchen with all the family like meeting and closing every loop up. And it's just also unbelievably choreographed and funny and like, and, but also true, like every little moment works, you know, like somehow you're able to this couple that's been together 40 years, you're able to like close the loop on his adultery just because she's like, stop it. And he says, okay. And they like, say I love you and that's it and you're like but it feels so like no that is actually the satisfying beautiful true end to it um totally it just I wish everything was paced the way it was and it also like everybody's motivations are clear but it is like not a movie that wastes a lot of time explaining itself for how much dialogue it is about feelings and family it's not just talk it's not and this is me not me knocking and it's not a rom-com like the, the family stone or something like that which is like oh this is a this is a family that you really love all the casting and you love the relationships and they're just kind of talking about their issues and having funny things like there's so much like wild impressionistic meme ready before there were memes dialogue in this movie that really on its own is like what Mm. what does this mean no one would say this but it's so like god every one of these lines was like quoted i feel like in my family like constantly yelling like snap out of it somebody tell a joke and you know uh everything is temporary all these Mm. things that like are so you know if you were really trying to like write a scene where it's like well what does he mean and how to what what is actually what do they feel here these lines don't do it that way but they're so like they say everything and they're just so heightened and and funny and i just can't believe how much i laughed again having seen it totally 40 times yeah it's like seeing it for the first time it's really i like it's sad that the dialogue is not what happens in films anymore you know like uh it's such a as much as there's so many beautiful visuals in it and a lot of 
acting without words. It's also just, you know, it feels like it's based on a playwright's work. And, you know, people say that that's kind of moved to TV, but TV's not like this. I wish there was TV like this. It's so smart and and mean, but loving. I don't know. It's yeah. just, it's a, it's a combo you just don't find. And I, I, in my own writing, I like this combination of trying to write things that feel not cartoonish or fake emotionally, like having grounded emotional things that are also like spoken in, in a heightened way that this could never happen in real life is sort of the ideal combo for, I don't know, it's like why you watch TV and not just go listen to people talk on the street. You know, mm-hmm. it's like, how do you, how do you do the really huge wild type of like dialogue that also feels like these are real people and they exist. Um, and they're not just a writer doing it. It's really hard, but it's like my favorite type of, of writing and also getting to write mean things. <laughs> or just characters that are constantly obsessed with death yeah. and yeah. threats without it just being mean-spirited because it never feels mean-spirited. Yeah, yeah. Um, just just uh, briefly, I don't want to take up too much of your time here, but just touching on, um, I know uh, we were talking about the comparison to uh, Royal Tenenbaums and having just recently watched that as well, I think those two movies feel like different sides of the same coin. Family comedies where the Royal Tenenbaums is a bit more fraught and there's more kind of repression and tension in the family and communication is not as good. But the same kinds of things about sort of morbid humor, uh, snottiness, like one of my favorite lines is that is like Bill Murray putting uh, Gwyneth Paltrow in the cab and saying, do you still love me? And she goes, I do kind of <laughs> like, <laughs> yeah, oh, so, so perfect. Yeah. Um, I mean, like that movie is even obviously like it's different than Moonstruck in that it's like an even more abstract painting of New York. You know, I think like why they're also so connected in my head is because like Moonstruck was this movie that I saw as a child that probably understood more layers and more humor and more of the emotion of what was going on as I got older, but like really painted this vivid picture of New York to me. That was not fully based in a reality that existed now. Like even these characters seem to be living in like a a New York that's slipping away in the late eighties and, and, what my father now living in Massachusetts with me or whatever, when I'm seeing Moonstruck is also kind of glamorizing, you know, it's like you're also being nostalgic about you in your twenties or whatever, Mm. you know, like his version of New York isn't just like how it used to be. It's also like how he used to be and how, you know, all that sort of thing. And Royal Tenenbaums takes that a few steps further of just kind of making up this New York where Mm. there's this idea of like, again, a very, white New York, but like a aristocratic bohemian combo where it's like, oh, is this, is this, this is, this is like the more interesting version of like, I don't know, old money gone crazy, like mm-hmm. gone weird and gone like literary. And it's sort of a decaying family and it's, they live on what, 198th street or what, 250, you know, they live in a fake street that doesn't exist. Like just as I was, I was a freshman in college when I saw that and I was already like, I know I need to move to New York. I want to get to New York and I want to do comedy and I want to write and I want to go to the Met and do all these things. And then to see this kind of, I don't know, high fashion, weird version of New York that was made up in this movie was, and I knew it was made up. I wasn't like, I want to go live like that or whatever, but yeah, it just, both of those really like, I think landed me in, in New York after college specifically. Yeah. And also with Royal Tenenbaums, like uh, that balance between very sensitive grounded um mm-hmm. scenes that are really intimate and this like heightened 
totally insane, you know, influenced by, you know, the magnificent Ambersons and that kind of like not intentionally over the top stuff that you can get in Orson Welles movies that was just more like the style of movies at the time, but mixed in with this, it's almost like a children's book. It's like fucking Pippi Longstocking or something where there's like, again, this kind of sense of magic without anything magical happening and something that's like just beyond reality, but still feels grounded in reality. Yeah, that's a really good way of putting it. And I think both movies also like, I mean, it's in the writing, but I think there's also the sensibility of the performances can really like kind of flow between this like really naturalistic, you might call it indie feeling, almost New York 60s, 70s actors studio style, like, oh God, this is so like lived and felt these like small little moments between the characters, but like the the structure, the skeleton that they're living in is so heightened and it's melodramatic and it is almost fantastical. But then you're, and and they're saying these big things that no one would ever say in real life, but then they're getting close up and having these, you know, conversations about like love or insecurity or disappointment or whatever that feels so small and so real. And in both movies, I never really feel like, I don't feel that there's like something tonally off with them. I'm not Mm. like, well, why are these characters who are just, you know, being big poetic cartoons screaming about the moon now having a like gritty bumbling moment? It just all feels real. And it's just such a beautiful like palette the way that, yeah, both those movies do that with like kind of cartoony stuff. But then also just, yeah, these really small moments. And, and so much of that's like the, both movies would not have worked with different casts or ta- casts not as talented as you put like a comedian in the Dan- Danny Aiello role or something like that. Mm-hmm. And in Moonstruck and you're just kind of like this buffoon, I don't buy, you know, but now he's kind of this believable heart on his sleeve schmuck that, you know, is doesn't realize he's an idiot that everyone's laughing at rather than trying to get laughs. Just, yeah. it's just incredible. Yeah. And John Mahoney as well, just like, oh my God, it's again, it's a subplot and it's something that could easily be throw away or uh, played even more for laughs. You know, the the scenes with him dating his students and getting, you know, drinks thrown on him and stuff that it's like just enough into ridiculousness. And then that scene with Olympia Dukakis is just like. Oh, it just kills me. They're both so fucking talented. And yeah. it's again that feeling with uh Royal Tenenbaums as well, where it's like Angelica Houston and uh Danny Glover and all of these people who are just like incredible, incredible, sensitive people who really define the craft of acting being able to tread that line between doing stuff that's totally ridiculous and totally sensitive. And, uh, you know, part of it is the direction, part of it is the scenery and, and all, all of these yeah. elements coming together, but definitely these, these actors, um, it's, it's yeah, just totally incredible. Yeah. Like if you didn't have Gene Hackman in, in Royal Tenenbaums, like it's that so easy that that movie is just like, well, this father is a, he's a bad guy He's a bad father and a, and a criminal. And I don't care about the way in which they're all drawn to each other or what he wants. But instead it's Gene Hackman who even having a history of like playing villains or being playing harder character parts is still has just such a magnetism that you kind of get why people are putting up with it, you know? And that is like, like John Mahoney is it like when he articulates the kind of sad reason why he keeps chasing after young students even now with the moment of time and reflection on like power dynamics and a fraught 
uh, relationships between men and women of different like ages and, you know, all these things that are like, oh, that this should be even more. And it is like gross or skin crawly to have him just be like, yeah, I date students because they're impressed with me as a teacher. But as he articulates, as maybe only John Mahoney can, like these, the pathos of like why he does it. And even though he knows it's not going to work out and he just kind of needs to feel like he's not as much of a annoying whatever windbag failure as he is it's just you get why olympia dukakis doesn't throw water in his face and why Mm -hmm. she like feels bad for him and you know let's lets him walk her home it's just so beautiful yeah and that's those moments in both movies of the kind of melancholy the sadness of real life kind of drifting in occasionally and that's what grounds it in reality it's like it's not all happy it's not all silly and funny it's all of those things together like life is it was like really interesting to like hear with the current context nicholas cage's speech about love is the speech is about love is not perfect and we're not meant to be perfect you know like it's hard and it sucks and we fuck up but basically just you know it's it's the big moment of the film where he's like convincing Cher that rather than leading this sort of orderly proper box checking life that she can set some things on fire or accept her realer nature or whatever to like follow love and be with him and blow up your life. And it's just, it's a really beautiful way to articulate, you know, something right now that I think is causing a lot of people, a lot of tension, this idea of like how to, I don't know, accept people, the the worst parts of people's nature or people's biggest mistakes or how to look at coming back from doing bad things. Or can you reconcile just how we all are looking at this moment in time where we're trying to figure out how we as a culture forgive or don't forgive or build roads back or what it means, whatever, all this stuff that isn't solved. And a lot of it is that we're no one is really good at accepting, not that they should be and not that we should just accept everything, but reconciling with like, sometimes people are very imperfect. Mm -hmm. And I don't know, I'm not not making the argument that you need to just accept that if you want to have like a fully passionate real life. But it is like the movie felt even more like modern watching it right now. I mean, it's still crazy how Moonstruck feels like it could come out tomorrow, not be aged at all. Yeah. And those ideas of redemption, you know, when people are having conversations about quote unquote cancel culture and whatever, that it's like these characters talking, you know, being flawed people and the key ingredient. And I think the thing that makes redemption possible is self-reflection and a willingness to change, to do something about it and to make amends and to try to set things right. And especially like in particular, I'm thinking of Gene Hackman's character that it's like, he fucks up constantly. He keeps doing the same shit that he's always done. And then at the end, it's like, he finally realizes that he needs to just own up to the shitty things that he's done and try to repair some of the damage and actually do the work of like being a better person. And, you know, the ending of the movie that it's like, he, he actually has these relationships with his family that he hadn't been able to, uh, yeah. Find in his whole life. But you and and that is the Hollywood, I guess, ending of it. But also like, I don't know, the movie ends with narration and he passes away a few years later or whatever. But it's like, I do think a little bit of his uh, a little bit of it is also him coming with hat in hand and being like, but also I am this person that's a schemer and kind of not a good guy. And I've, I, I'm now accepting that I've hurt you, but I, you're, you're like, you're probably all always going to be a little bit of this schemer and sure. you're always going to have done these things. And, mm-hmm. you know, but, it, but you're like, I'm your father and there's something between us. And like, let's just try to like, hold on to that and have this time. And 
I'm dying. And like the movie doesn't explicitly say that, but that is also like sometimes the real ending for how that kind of story works. And I think that's, that's human. And that's like what life is. It's not, you know, not that I'm saying this is what movies are now, but the idea of like bad things happen to very good people who eventually solve or get out of the bad thing is like, Mm. just not as interesting a story as people in stuck in problems of their own making, trying to change themselves to get out of it, you know, but ultimately still being the same person they started as is like a little more what we all deal with in life. Like we can all change, but we're also all still kind of stuck with stuck with ourselves a little bit or our worst nature. So I don't know. They're just, I feel like we went very far off track, but, um, (laughs) but yeah. And that, you know, I think that's all true that it's like both learning to accept your own flaws and also being able to accept the flaws in other people. For sure. Um, I think that is a, lovely note to finish on um this has been so much fun this is like i'm so glad that this movie means as much to you as it does to me it it, yeah it's just i don't know people really love moonstruck but it also sometimes does feel like a little bit of like uh that there's like a cult of moonstruck i i Mm. saw an interview with norman jewison where he said like you either really loved it or you didn't get it and I do think there's still a lot of people that are like, oh, yeah, Moonstruck, share. She's amazing. You know, Nicolas Cage, what's he doing in that movie or that? What a crazy movie. And maybe that's all true. But like, I do feel like for people that like you that like that movie, we really like that movie. Yeah. It's like coming home. It's so special. Yeah. Yeah. <sighs> um, well, thank you again. This was absolutely fantastic. I really enjoyed this. This was so great, Adam. It was lovely to talk to you about this. And um, I wish there were more things like Moonstruck, but we always have Moonstruck. So it's there. Yes. (laughs) All right, Max. Thank you so much again. All right. Take care. You too. Bye-bye. That was so much fun. Thanks again to Max for making time for me and having such a great conversation about these amazing films. Check out all his work. He's hilarious. Okay, very quick inspirational work of the week for me. To my mind, the other big iconic role that Olympia Dukakis played was Mrs. Madrigal in the TV adaptations of the Tales of the City books by Armistead Maupin. The original season was on PBS and it had this huge impact on me. They're stories about queer people living in San Francisco and seeing queer people living normal lives, forming communities of chosen families and loving and supporting each other was totally revelatory to me as a kid and Olympia Dukakis's performance was really the glue that held the whole thing together so R.I.P. Olympia Dukakis she was an incredible performer and she will be missed <sighs> okay that is it for this week as always follow me on social media at Spark Parade and rate and review the show please wherever you download it great ratings and reviews only thank you very much and that is it Have a very fun week, be good, and until next time, bye! It's lunchtime at Tim Hortons, and we're serving up a special deal just for you. Our new $5.99 lunch deal includes your choice of any lunch sandwich and a side of crunchy kettle chips. Because what's lunch without a little crunch? And the sandwich choice is all yours. Like a ham and Swiss, Chipotle chicken wrap, BLT, and more. Made to order just the way you like it. 
Tim Hortons new lunch deal. Simple, delicious, and just $5.99. Now that's a good deal. Only at your neighborhood Tim's. U.S. only. Price and participation vary. Terms apply.